We're going to stick quite closely this morning to the, the passage uh, which we read a moment ago, so it'd be good to have that uh, passage open uh, before you just now. Let us pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, David introduced a series, a four-week series uh, called Gods That Fail. And for four Sunday mornings throughout May, we're going to be looking together at the subject of idolatry. It's a spin-off, really, from the, the series that's been running throughout the springtime on the Ten Commandments. So we're taking the chance to delve a little bit deeper uh, into the area of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, uh, and the second related command, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Why are we doing that? Why is it a, a worthwhile thing to think about idolatry? It's because we want to learn to follow Jesus Christ. If we want to be worshipping the true and living God, if we want to deepen our devotion to Jesus Christ, his son, then we will need to expose and see in our lives the false gods that get in the way, that prevent us from serving the true and the living God. So we're thinking about idolatry because we want to follow Jesus. Not, not just because idolatry is interesting, but because we want to be people uh, following Jesus Christ. What's the first thing you think about when you hear that word idolatry? I think at a superficial level, our response can be to imagine people from some primitive culture who bow before uh, statues of stone or, or carvings of wood. But if you've been around here this springtime and you've been thinking along with us, about idolatry, about the Ten Commandments, uh, you'll know that idolatry isn't a thing of some distant, primitive culture. It's a thing that's alive and well in the world that we live in today, particularly in the, the technological, modern world that we live in. So a couple of weeks ago, David helped us to start on this series by helping us think about the idol of money. I, I think money and material wealth are probably the most obvious idol in our culture. There's something about money and the things that it buys that, that's very tangible. That's the stuff that we can see, the, the stuff that dominates our horizons. But there are other, more subtle forms of idolatry, and they too steal our hearts from a full devotion to Jesus. That's what we want to think about this next three week in this series, Gods That Fail. This morning, I want to think with you about the idol of romantic love. When Claire and I lived in Vancouver in Canada, we became big fans of the, the local singer from that city, Sarah McLaughlin. She's a brilliant songwriter with a voice like an angel. If you've ever heard her, you'll know uh, what I'm talking about. Let me read you the chorus of a song called Push from her 2005 album. 
she addresses her lover and she sings these words. You stay the course, you hold the line, you keep it all together. You're the one true thing I know I can believe in. You're all the things that I desire. You save me, you complete me. You're the one true thing I know I can believe in. In some ways, those lines seem pretty unremarkable because they sound a lot like uh, the lines we would hear in any number uh, of modern uh, pop songs. These sentiments of focusing our attention on romantic love dominate our pop songs, our our soap operas, our movies, our, our novels. The singers, the actors, and the writers, they tell us about how a character becomes over-dependent on love. Without romantic relationships of some kind, we're told life simply isn't worth living. Our culture has made an idol of romantic love. The story in the Bible that we read this morning shows us how romantic love can lead us into slavery if we make an idol of it. The story of Jacob and Leah. It's an ancient story, obviously, but it's never been more relevant. There's an important backstory which we don't have time to deal with at any length today. You can read it from about chapter 27 onwards. By the time we pick up the story in chapter 29, Jacob's life is in ruins. He's lost his family and his inheritance. He'd never see his mother or his father alive again. And he's headed off far away to his mother's people uh, to see if he might at least survive. His mother's folks take him in, and that's where we pick up the story in our reading in chapter 29. His uncle Laban offers him work as one of the shepherds caring for his flocks. And once Laban watches him for a wee while, he realizes this guy's good. And he offers him a management position. And they start to negotiate a salary. In verse 15, Laban asks Jacob the question that every employee wants their boss to ask. No no boss has ever asked me this question. Tell me what your wages should be. One day, one day they will. Jacob doesn't even have to think for a second. He's one word. Rachel. I'll work for you for seven years. If you give me Rachel as my wife. Now the Hebrew text here says that she literally has a great figure and that she's beautiful. So Jacob here is absolutely smitten. He's gone hook, line, and sinker, and he offers seven years' wages. Now, Now we have no way of understanding that, but apparently that's about four times what the normal bride price would have been. So this will give you some idea of just how much Jacob has become besotted with Rachel. We're told in verse 20 that the seven years he worked seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Now look at verse 20. Jacob wants, Jacob says to his soon-to-be father-in-law, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Now this ought to jar on us a little bit. What we have here is a boyfriend coming to the girlfriend's dad and saying, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. 
that's Jacob. The narrator's showing us just where Jacob is. He's overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for Rachel. Why is that? What's brought Jacob to this point? Why why, why is he uh, so dramatically following after Rachel? It's because his life was empty. His father had never loved him. You need to read the story to see that. He'd lost the life, or he'd lost the, the closeness of his mother who did love him. And as far as we can see, he never really took God very seriously up until this point in his life. And now he sees what he thinks is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And he says this to himself. He says, if only I could have her. Finally, my miserable life would be fixed. Rachel will save me. Rachel will complete me. All the longings of Rachel's heart, of Jacob's heart, fixed on Rachel. Do you see now how contemporary this ancient story is? We're being invited in our culture by the artists and the musicians to load all of our deepest needs for significance and worth into romantic love. If you listened to a copy of Michael Bublé's latest album, you'd hear him tell you in the words of an old song, you're nothing till somebody loves you. And our entire Western culture has bought into the sentiment. A word at this point to anyone here this morning who's single. It's easy and tempting to maintain some sort of a fantasy in our lives that if we find our one true soulmate, then everything that's wrong with us will be healed. That person, when they finally come into our lives, will save us. They'll complete us. Brothers and sisters, it's not going to work. There is no person No human being who can do that for you. There's no one qualified for the role of Savior. No one can live up to that. If we make an idol out of another human being, we're destined for a huge disillusionment. We've said that it was Jacob's inner emptiness that made him vulnerable to this idol of romantic love. And that's always the way with idolatry. It's when we aren't being filled and and delighting in God that we find our satisfaction in other things. We've called this series on idolatry, Gods That Fail. For Jacob, this God of romantic love let him down with disastrous consequences. He'd worked seven years for Laban. He'd asked for his reward. Then there was the customary big wedding feast. And in the middle of the celebration, Laban brought Jacob's wife to him, heavily veiled. Now, if you find this part of the story weird and unbelievable, remember these guys have been partying for a while. The drink's been flowing. It's late at night, and the veiled Leah is wheeled out. Jacob doesn't really notice. 
There's a dramatic twist in the tale. We're told in verse 25 that when morning came, there was Leah. In the full light of day, Jacob looks. He sees that he's consummated his marriage with Leah, the unattractive older sister of Rachel, and he's trembling with rage. And he comes to Laban and he says, What is this you have done to me? That's just the way we do things around here. Laban says. So was the older girl first. If you work for me another seven years, I'll, I'll throw Rachel in too. Jacob is stung and he's trapped and he submits to another seven years in order to marry Rachel as well as Leah. Have you ever wondered how Jacob could be so gullible as you've read this story? He's gullible because he's an addict. Once we're an addict, we we part company with wisdom, with good decisions. And it's very, very possible that romantic love can become our addiction, the drug that we, we think will help us escape the reality of our lives. That's what happened here to Jacob. He'd made Rachel into not, not just a wife, but, but a savior. We mustn't be naive about the, the devastating results of all of this. Jacob's idolatry of Rachel creates decades of misery. If you know how this story plays out, you'll know that. Do you remember Jacob's favoritism for his son Joseph and that technicolor dream coat and the trouble that that caused in the family? All of that was born of his idolatry for Rachel. Joseph was a son of Rachel, therefore he had a favorite and it ruined his family. So idolatry ravages Jacob's life, but, but surely the biggest casualty here is Leah. The narrator doesn't tell us much about Leah. He only tells us one thing. Verse 17, that she had weak eyes. Now that might mean that she had bad eyesight, that when she was in the opticians, she could only get to the, the second line before she, she couldn't read the letters anymore. But I don't think that's what it means. Her weak eyes are set in contrast to Rachel's beauty. There's something about Leah that she's not so beautiful as Rachel. Does she she maybe be cross-eyed? Maybe she's literally not much to look at. The point is that Leah here is particularly unattractive and that she lives in the shadow of her attractive sister, Rachel. Now, you've got to see what's going on here. Laban knew that he would never get rid of Leah. No one was ever going to stump up the money to pay for her to marry her. He was never going to get rid of Leah, and that means he could never cash in on Rachel. But in Jacob, he found the answer. He saw an opportunity, and he capitalized on it. But do you see what all of this means for Leah? The daughter whose father didn't love her now becomes the wife whose husband didn't love her. Leah's the girl that nobody wants. Verse 30 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. 
So Leah has a hole in her heart every bit as big as the hole that's in Jacob's heart. And she begins to do exactly the same thing, only in a different way that Jacob has done. She makes a God of romantic love. Verses 31 to 35 tell the story. What's Leah doing? She's trying to find happiness in traditional family values. Having sons, especially in those days, was the way to do that. But it wasn't working. She set all her hopes and her dreams on her husband. If I have babies, and if they're sons, my husband will come to love me. Then finally, my unhappy life will be fulfilled. Jacob will save me. Jacob will complete me. It didn't happen. Every birth pulled her down further into a hell of loneliness. Every single day of her life, she had to see the one whom she loved in the arms of her sister in whose shadow she'd lived all her life. You might be wondering where the heroes are in this story. Who am I supposed to be emulating in this ancient Bible passage? And the answer, of course, is no one. Don't read this story looking for heroes or examples to follow. Instead, read it as part of God's bigger story, that great story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says of this story that we learn here that through all of life there runs a ground note of cosmic disappointment. You're never going to live a wise life until you understand that. Jacob said, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be okay. And he goes to bed with the one he thinks is Rachel. And literally the Hebrew says, in the morning it was Leah. No matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, says Keller, it's always Leah and never Rachel. Folks, that's the problem with idolatry. It never delivers what it promises. A word to those who are married. If we put all the weights of our hopes and our longings in the person we're marrying, we will crush them under the weight of our expectations. It'll distort our life and theirs in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best person, can give you everything that your soul needs. We'll start out thinking that we've gone to bed with Rachel and we'll discover sooner or later that it's Leah. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should love our spouses any less. I'm saying that we should do the thing that we were created for and that is love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds and strength. And then we'll be free to love our spouses like never before. Leah's the one person in this story who makes any sort of progress at all. 
And we have to wait for the very end of the story for her breakthrough. After years of her childbearing and her misery, when she gives birth to her last son, Judah, she says in verse 35, This time I will praise the Lord. There's a defiance in her voice here and a total change of direction. The previous three sons, her her declaration after them was all about husbands and all about sons, but not this time. This time, I will praise the Lord. Finally, she's taken her hopes off her husband and her sons, and she's put them on, on God. Jacob and Laban had stolen Leah's life from her. But it's when she pinned her hopes on the Lord that her life came back to her. I said a moment ago that these old stories only finally make sense in the light of the story of Jesus. What's Leah got to do with Jesus? Well, this fourth son, Judah, the one for whom Leah praised the Lord, we're told in Genesis 49 that it's through him that the true king, the Messiah, is going to come to his people. God had come to the girl that nobody wanted and he had made her the ancestral mother of Jesus. Salvation came into the world not through Rachel, but through Leah, the unwanted and unloved Leah. Not only was salvation coming through Leah. When Jesus finally came, he was very much a son of Leah. He too was the one that nobody wanted. He was born in a cattle feed trough. The prophet Isaiah told us that he had no beauty that we should desire him. John in his gospel tells us that when he came, his own people didn't want him. And in the end, everyone abandoned him. Jesus cried from his cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus become Leah's son? Why did he become the man that nobody wanted? For you and for me. He took his sins, our sins on himself. He died in our place. And he did it all because of love. Friends, as you stand before the cross of Jesus Christ and think of the lengths that he has gone to for you, let that sight move you. Let the sight of his love for you be the thing that detaches your heart from all the other idols that clutter your life, from all your other would-be saviors. When we see Jesus, we stop trying to redeem ourselves through the idols of money and and of romantic love and, and those other things because we see that we've already been redeemed. We stop 
hanging our hopes on our lovers to save us because we've already been saved. We stop hoping that our lovers will make us complete because he already is completing us by his spirit. Let's join together and pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of human love. Thank you for the way you bring that love into our lives. Forgive us for making idols of our lovers. Show us that only you can give us all that we need. You stay the course. You hold the line. You keep it all together. You're the one true thing that we know that we can believe in. Help us to make you everything that we desire. Remind us that you have saved us in Jesus. Reassure us that you will complete us as your spirit works in our lives. Lord God, set us free from our idols to love you. Amen.